Gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Before I begin with my written text this morning, I'm going to take a moment of personal privilege just to say how good it is to be home. After this week, I couldn't imagine being anywhere else than Holy Communion. It has been a rough week, and I am so glad to be home. Who is my neighbor? The lawyer's question brings us a radical story from Jesus this morning. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus' answer is a story that has become one of his best-known teachings. And it may feel a bit watered down because we know it so well. On the surface, the message of the Good Samaritan seems simple. Be kind. Show mercy. The very name Samaritan has become shorthand in the church for mercy ministries. I've worked in churches on both coasts, and I've known Samaritan ministries that have done everything from housing the homeless to providing health insurance. Good Samaritan, the words go together in the minds of church people. But, as a Canadian minister once said, a text without a context can be a pretext. The words Good Samaritan go together in our minds, but those words together would have shocked Jesus' lawyer. The man can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan was his neighbor at the end of the story. Did you notice that? He never says Samaritan. He says the man who showed mercy. Samaritan was a bad word in Jesus' day. Samaritans were the outsiders, the other to the Jewish people. We're not entirely sure why, and we don't have the history exactly laid down. Second Kings alludes to an idea that the Samaritans took advantage of the Jewish exile and occupied the land. But for whatever reason, there was enmity between the people Israel and the Samaritans. It's hard to come up with an equivalent label to Samaritan in our own context partly because we're so divided. Let's try this on for size. If Jesus was at the Democratic National Convention later this summer and a lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus might tell this story about the priest and the official passing a beaten man on the side of the road. Then Jesus would shock them at the Democratic National Convention when he said, an NRA member and Fox News host walking home from a tent revival happened upon the man. Or, if Jesus was at the Republican convention, he might surprise them by saying, a socialist Muslim migrant came by after a protest, cared for the man. This parable is radical because Samaritans in Jesus' time aren't good guys. Yet somehow, Jesus causes this lawyer to question. Jesus invites him to expand his neighborhood, to include the outsider, even the enemy. Who is my neighbor? This is a question we desperately need to ask in America today. We have survived a miserable week. Waiting to board a plane Thursday in London, coming back from three weeks abroad, 
I first saw the video of Alton Sterling and then the video of Philando Castile being killed by police officers. Friday morning, I woke back home in America to hear that five police officers had been killed in the line of duty at a Black Lives Matter protest in Dallas. This week, I have seen expressions of worry from black friends. Hugs have been a little tighter sending a husband or a son out for the day. Please come home again has taken on a prayerful tone in many families. It's not just my African-American friends who are terrified. Police families know this fear well, and they're feeling it especially this week after Dallas. This has been a miserable week. There's a danger this week. There's a danger that we will retreat into our little camps. When we're driven by fear, we can circle our wagons and work actively to keep outsiders out of our figurative neighborhoods. Who is my neighbor? It's good this question comes this week. How often do we, like Jesus' lawyer, think we know exactly who we count and discount as neighbor? How often are the sides clearly demarcated? How easily do we divide people into camps? I can't even talk to her. She's a Trump supporter. I had to unfriend him. Everything he posts praises Obama. She's just an angry black woman. I can't listen to her. He's a white, straight man. He can't even see his privilege. We do violence to our community when we divide. When we see a label instead of a person, we refuse a basic truth. We are, all of us, created in the image of God. All God's people have equal value. We are all neighbors. The violence of our divisions became visible and deadly this week. First, in Baton Rouge and St. Paul. I believe most police officers truly are in their work because they want to protect and serve everyone. Undeniably, there are police officers out there who operate from a place of overt, unchallenged racism. And we saw text messages from police officers in San Francisco over the last year that exposed the racial epithets they were sending back and forth. It's not an isolated phenomenon. We need to require anti-bias and anti-racist education for our police officers just like we do for ministers and school teachers and all sorts of other professionals. It makes sense to require our public safety personnel to learn about diversity and anti-racism. But while overt racism is a problem sometimes in the police force, I don't know that anti-racism work would have necessarily saved the lives of Alton Brown or Philando Castile. Overt racism isn't the only race problem we have in policing. More subtle and in some ways more powerful forces are at work around race. Systemic racism plays a huge part in the interactions between police and public. For years, the policies and practices of our country have divided people into neighborhoods based on skin color. For decades, we kept people with white skin and people with dark skin from being neighbors. Now, today on the books, it is illegal to deny someone housing based upon race. But in practice, black citizens are still more likely to live in predominantly black, predominantly poor, violent inner city neighborhoods 
with failing schools. Even the best-meaning police officers aren't eager to be assigned patrols in black neighborhoods. Officers often describe feeling on edge in these areas, and that stress can lead to bad judgment, even by officers who don't hold overtly racist opinions. Conscious or unconscious, overt or systemic, race plays a part in how people are policed and how people perceive policing in our country. Our neighborhoods are not created equal, and they are policed unequally. At the same time, I believe we cannot ignore the role that firearms played in this week's deaths. At least purportedly, both officers fired because they believed the man they had stopped was reaching for a gun. As I said, I saw these videos from London, and while we were there, I was reminded that the majority of police officers in the United Kingdom don't carry guns. They don't have to. The UK has some of the lowest gun ownership rates per capita in the world. Criminals are unlikely to have access to a firearm, so most police don't need guns to do their job. In the United States, many police organizations have endorsed various gun control proposals precisely because our police officers would be more safe if there were fewer guns on the street. Gun control could have made a big difference in Dallas. If you have been dishonorably discharged from the armed services, you should not be able to buy a gun. If you have had complaints of domestic violence, you should not be able to buy a gun. If you have been diagnosed with a mental illness, you should not be able to buy a gun. If you've been on a terrorism watch list, you should not be able to buy a gun. Our streets would be safer. Our communities would be safer. Our police officers would be safer. If we want to make meaningful progress around policing and race, I believe we must literally disarm the conversation. If black lives matter, if police lives matter, we have to stop the flow of guns onto our streets. It is impossible to see someone as your neighbor when you're worried about what they're about to do with their gun. This disarmament, this conversation, will take time. St. Paul this morning prays for patience. It's going to take time. We've spent centuries exploiting the labor of black bodies in this country. As a country, we've spent decades keeping black bodies out of white neighborhoods. It will take a long time to unpick these knots. History will remember this week. Will we remember this week as a week when we realized we needed to reach out to our neighbors and worked to change the systems that divide and oppress? Will we remember this summer as a season when we finally got serious about gun control? As I thought this week about neighbors and policing, a funny and in some ways maybe a little irreverent realization came to me. And I'm going with it because I need some hope at the end of this sermon. I'm one of those white kids who grew up in the suburbs. And part of that privilege means that I don't remember police officers on the streets as a kid. 
but I do have a vivid childhood image of a police officer. He was on TV. Specifically, he lived in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. <laughs> now, it's worth laughing, and the Mr. Rogers theme song may be a bit like the story of the Good Samaritan. We've heard, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. So many times, the message is probably a little thin. It probably seems trite these days anyway. But Mr. Rogers, who was an ordained Presbyterian minister, found ways to teach Jesus' radical lessons, even in an interdenominational TV show. Officer Francois Clemens was a character played by an actor whose name was also Francois Clemens. <laughs> he was the first black character to have a recurring role on an American children's television show. In an NPR interview this year, Clemens recalled Fred Rogers approaching him after hearing him sing in church. And Mr. Rogers said, I have this idea that you could play a police officer. Clemens wasn't eager at first. And these are his words. I grew up in the ghetto. I did not have a positive opinion of police officers. Policemen were sticking dogs on, and water hoses on people, he said. I really had a hard time putting myself in that role. So I was not excited about being Officer Clemens at all. Eventually, though, he came around. In 1969, 1969, Officer Clemens and Mr. Rogers recorded a scene that on the surface seems incredibly simple. As the camera zooms in, Mr. Rogers is sitting in his front yard with his feet in a wading pool on a hot summer's day. He invites Officer Clemens to take a break from walking his beat to join him. Simple, until you remember that this was 1969. Kids in St. Louis who happened to be black weren't allowed in pools reserved for white people. Mr. Rogers and Officer Clemens sat there with their feet in the pool singing a song until Officer Clemens had to get back to work. So Mr. Rogers helped him to dry his feet. Pastor Rogers found a way to sneak the washing of feet into a television show. And he washed the feet of his black police officer friend and neighbor. Radical. Officer Clemens quietly challenged the children who watched the Mr. Rogers show. For white kids in the suburbs, he challenged the idea that they shouldn't be sharing a pool with black people. For black kids in the city, he presented them with a friendly singing police officer, someone who you could trust to keep you safe and teach you a valuable lesson. The friendship on screen told kids, this black man, this police officer, he is my neighbor, and he can be your neighbor too. Who is my neighbor? This question is at the heart of this painful week. Who is my neighbor? It's a question at the heart of our journey as followers of Jesus. Do we have the courage to see beyond the assumptions, the cliques, and the prejudices so readily offered to us? Do we have the courage to expand our vision? 
Won't you be my neighbor? Amen.